Tonight's reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 39, and can be found in page 1135 of the Church Bibles. Future glory. I consider that our present offerings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope what we do not, for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecute or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Is that a lovely phrase in that song that uh, the Lord is the one who lifts up our heads? It's so easy to have our heads down like that, isn't it? He's the lifter up of our heads. That's a great image. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you to the team. Susan. Matthew, thank you for all your help. Now, if uh, you have uh, 
the opportunity to turn to the passage that Matt read to us from Romans chapter 8. That might be helpful. We're on page 1135. These Sunday nights we've been following a series entitled The Most Misused Verses of the Bible. Well known and often uh, misquoted verses such as, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That's from Jeremiah 29. And John 14, you may ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. And tonight we come to this exceptionally well-known chapter and to a verse frequently used or misused. And it's our task this evening not merely to demonstrate how it sometimes is misquoted, but to see what it is in fact wonderfully and gloriously promising. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Will we just pray together? Gracious God, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your word and encourage our hearts that we may better understand your great purposes for the kingdom. In Jesus' great and powerful name. Amen. Well, let me uh, start off, if I may, by suggesting two ways in which it is inappropriate to use Romans 8, 28. One in a pastorally insensitive way, and the second in a theologically inept way. Uh, more than once I have been in a situation of bereavement and grief and a visitor enters the scene and either out of anxiety about what to say or through a misplaced desire to say something helpful says, ah well, I suppose it's all for the best. Uh, that's from the SBV, the Simplified Belfast Version. <laughs> of uh, Romans 8, 28, everything works together for good. I suppose it's all for the best. Now, the outsider may think that. Indeed, the person to whom they are speaking might even believe that. But it's still not a good time to say it. When somebody has lost somebody close to them, a friend or a relative or even an elderly mum or dad for whom uh, you've been diligently nursing for many years. It's Job's comfort for somebody to say, I suppose it's for the best. It might well be, uh, but it's probably not for the casual visitor or neighbor to say it any time, and most particularly at the moment of most acute sensitivity or loss. I think we've all been there. So that's the pastorally insensitive use of Romans 8.28. The theologically inept way is to rip it out of its context and to divest it of its power. And so I quote from the author Eric Barger-Hoff. What does it mean to say that all things work together for good? Is Paul defining the word good the way we might be tempted to define it, as short for general success, health, financial security, or personal happiness? And even if that 
Where the case, does that mean that all things work together for the good of everyone? Even as I was writing this very sentence, an email came in from an ecstatic Christian parent that none of you will know, delighted that their non-believing daughter had just been awarded her PhD. It's all come together wonderfully, she said. Is that what Romans 28 is say, Romans 8, 28 saying? All things work together for good. It's all come together wonderfully. Well, well, I think that's where we have to turn then to the text and read it again. We know, writes the Apostle Paul, um, in other words, this is something we can be absolutely certain about. In all the uncertain things about life, God himself works for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purpose. Well, the first thing for us to notice is that it is written to believers within whom God's Holy Spirit is dwelling. Isn't that, the, isn't that right? It's not a general catch-all for everybody, irrespective of trust or otherwise in God. Glance back just two verses where the apostle is talking about those things that cannot be certain about. We do not know how we ought to pray. Well, that's not relevant for the unbeliever, is it? But while there are plenty of things that are a complete and utter puzzle to Christians, here is one great certainty that God is very much in control and those who love him, more those who are loved by him, can rest in this great assurance that God is very much in charge. Um, maybe somebody needs to be reminded that tonight. God's very much in control. Okay? Well, having established that this verse is neither beneficial as a bland platitude for people who have suffered a setback or bereavement, nor is it a lucky charm promise for every Thomas, Richard, or Henry, what might be its proper use? And for this, without embarrassment, I'll be relying heavily upon the insights of Timothy Keller, who paraphrases Romans 8, 28 for the Christian believer in this way. God will give you everything you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Will I say that again? God will give you everything you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. When we follow the Lord Jesus, says Keller, our bad things turn out for good, our good things cannot be lost, and our best things are yet to come. So will we look at those briefly in turn? First of all, as we trust in Jesus, even our bad things turn out for good. Sometimes people have given the impression that God shelters Christian people from bad things, except the Scriptures doesn't, uh, don't support that. What Scripture does tell us is that God is with Christian people through the bad things. 
We've been singing about that. And if God is with Christian people through the bad things, that has to be a good thing. Romans 8, 35. What then can separate us from the love of Christ? Matthew read this to us. Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So Christian people's circumstances and the Apostle Paul's experience is that the believer, his lot is no better than anybody else's. In fact, the Christian might suffer a whole lot more because of trusting in Jesus. Terrible things can and horrible things do happen God's people. But here's the promise. God is with them through their experience. Now, is that not hugely significant? And I think this is a, a point many, many believers testify to. I'm certain there are people here tonight who would say amen to that. God does not shelter believing people from trauma, but he is with Christian people through those trials and those terrible experiences. It's maybe important just to say a wee word here about another misinterpretation. Um, even as this verse does not promise that those who love God will have better circumstances than non-believers, neither does it pretend that bad things are actually good things. I was thinking about this. This, this was actually a popular kind of uh, teaching when I was in my 20s. You don't hear it so much today. Um, but then we were encouraged to give thanks to God for evil experiences. Do any of you recall that? Uh, and that's, that's not helpful because bad things are bad things. But Romans 8, 28 tells us that even in the midst of those bad things, God is to be located. And he is able to turn even those negative things into something positive and good. Think, think of the story of, of Lazarus. As Jesus went to Mary and Martha's bereavement home, he didn't go in with a jovial laugh uh, as if death was something good, because it wasn't. He was weeping. He was weeping because death is bad. Suffering and sadness and sorrow and pain are horrible. Jesus didn't go in and say that bad things aren't really bad things. He wasn't even saying that bad things are really a blessing in disguise. The story of Lazarus illustrates that even in the bad things, God is with believing people through those bad experiences. And he will take those bad things and in his providence, he will turn them for good in the total picture. God will give you everything you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. And that even means that sometimes God withholds good things 
That is things that we might think are good because God knows that in the long run, they might in fact be terrible things for us. They might be good in the partial, but not in the whole. And yet on the other hand, God will only permit bad things into our lives in order to cure us of things that may destroy us in the long time, long term, whether that be foolishness or pride, selfishness or hardness of heart, arrogance or trusting in our own abilities. As we place our faith in Jesus, even our bad things turn out for good. And then the second point is this. As we trust in Jesus, our good things can never be lost. What are the good things that God works for those who love him? And the answer is to be found in the very next verse in Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Now, don't let's get all concerned about that word predestined. All that means is that if you love God, here is something you can be absolutely sure about. In an uncertain world, here is a promise that is totally immovable. God's number one purpose for us, the ultimate good that is for which God is weaving and working everything together, is for making us more like the Lord Jesus. And that's why as we trust in Christ, our good things can never be lost. The Greek word here, for, by, the way, by the way, for conformed, uh, conformed after the likeness of Christ, is morpha. Do you remember morph? Some of you will remember Tony Hart. Morph was made out of plasticine. Or um, back to my geography days, metamorphic rock, rock that has undergone a process of change, rocks that have been profoundly transformed, often through uh, extreme high temperature or great pressure. Do you think it is coincidence that the Christians we tend to most immediately think of as heroes of the faith Believers that we admire are frequently, most usually people who have been transformed by experience of great trauma or pain in their lives. Through that, they have been morphed, conformed to the image of Jesus, who himself, as we know, went through enormous pressure and suffering for us. And as we trust in Jesus, everything that happens to us has the capacity to mold us, sculpt us, polish us, shape us into the image of God's only begotten Son. Even metamorphosis can make us more like him, granting us his nature, his character, and in his, his inner beauty. So as we trust in Jesus, our good things can never be lost. Number one, as we trust in Jesus, even our bad things turn out for good. 
as we trust in Jesus, our good things can never be lost. And then thirdly and lastly, as we trust in Jesus, the best things are yet to come. Mark, you had that in the song as well. As we know, Romans 8, 28, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. When we trust in Jesus, when the Holy Spirit enters into our hearts, enabling us to cry, Abba, Father, do you see that in chapter 8, verse 15? That means that we are called sons of God. Now, I'm going to share something with you I've never seen before preparing this study. And even as I was writing this, I wanted to translate that phrase that we are called sons of God into sons and daughters of God. Why? Because I think it's important to use inclusive language. Except, points out Keller, that's to miss the point here. The text says that Christ was the firstborn among many brothers. Those within, God's, within whom God's Holy Spirit dwells are adopted into God's family. Now, when Paul was talking about adoption here, he wasn't talking about what we commonly think of when a couple uh, adopt a wee baby or a toddler. In the Roman world, most adoption was of adults. Let's say there was a wealthy person who had no heir. He didn't want his estate to be broken up when he died, so he would adopt an adult male, usually somebody who had worked with him, someone he trusted. By adopting that adult male, he made him his son. Legally, at that moment, when the person adopted this person, their relationship changed from formal to intimate, from temporary to permanent, from conditional to unconditional. And if the man had any debts before he was adopted, those were wiped up, wiped, wiped out. He would be rich. Now, says Keller, and this was an insight he got from a woman from a non-Western family who understood the Middle Eastern culture. She helped him gain this important insight. If there was a son in that family, he would have been the one to inherit. If there was a daughter, she wouldn't have inherited. That was just the way it was in those days. The Apostle Paul lived in a traditional context just like that, where daughters were second-class citizens. But here the Apostle writes, out of his male-dominated culture, when we trust in Jesus, now there are no second-class citizens in God's family. We are all sons in Christ. Do you see? When we belong to Christ, when we place our hope in him as male or female, we receive the benefits of a son. Our adoption means we are loved even as Christ the Son 
is loved. We are honored even as he is honored. And the more we live out who we are as sons of the living Lord, so God has not merely promised better things in life, but a far better life, both now and for all of eternity. And this promise of heaven is not to trivialize suffering here and now in this life, but rather this promise of sonship is the very thing that takes the trials and difficulties and troubles and sorrows of this life seriously. The promise of sonship is the very thing that heals the hurts of our hearts and transforms our griefs into triumphs. As we trust in Jesus, God's word promises that the best things are yet to come. So back then to the text. We know, says the apostle, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God will give you everything you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. That's not a general platitude for everybody. It is a specific promise for those within whom God's Holy Spirit dwells, among whom God's Holy Spirit at work, are bad things turn out for good. Our good things cannot be lost. Our best things are yet to come. Let's pray together. And uh, as we do so, perhaps we can take a moment to think back over our experience, how these Bible principles have in fact worked out in our lives. Those times, not because of us, but in spite of us, God has brought together the most amazing circumstances and situations that are just incomprehensible apart from him. And he's used those for our good and for his glory. And yet maybe others are in the midst of a situation where we can make no sense of the circumstances of life but we're encouraged to trust. Heavenly Father, we're reminded tonight of the events which led up to the cross, those horrible, dreadful circumstances, which nonetheless brought about our redemption. Dear God, so we pray that you will enable us to hold on to this assurance that our good things can never be lost. Our bad things can turn out for good. And our best things are yet to be. Help us to trust in you this coming week so that your word becomes part of us.
as David reminded us this morning, we can build our lives on the solid rock of your word that is altogether trustworthy. We pray for his sake.